Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and a writer, but for the purposes of this podcast, I am your chief investigator of images. I'm joined today by a dear friend and a fellow York University graduate, I might add, which is something we have in common, Greg Jenner. Now, when I asked Greg how he wanted to be described, maverick, sex god and man of the people, which obviously I agree with all of those, but for your day job, Greg, you do something a bit more, you know, applicable, which is that you're a public historian, aren't you? And most excitingly, the historical consultant on horrible histories, possibly the best historical TV making out there. <laughs> Have I described you accurately? Uh, I think that's pr- it's probably fair. I, I tend to use the <laughs> phrase chief nerd to horrible histories for the kids. That's what they like to, to call me. Um, that, that means you're like uber nerd. You are beyond, you're on a level yeah, beyond in- nerdery. Well, I've got a team of researchers, so I, I get to be king of the nerds, and I've got a you know people who help me out. But um, chief historical advisor, yeah, yeah. You have been in it as well, haven't you? I believe you were. You didn't have the crown, but you were one of uh, William's men, weren't you? I am William the Conqueror's William the Conqueror's dancing squire in chainmail in the uh, in the King and Queen song. I because I did ballet as a kid. I think they they were like, right, you can do some dancing. And uh, it's surprisingly it's amazing. hard. I've watched it so many times, it makes me laugh. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so you are you are chief nerd, but, but a very amazing historian. You've written, well, your your first book. Was it your first book, The yeah. Million Years in a Day? Yeah. That was incredible, and it did so well, didn't it? It's been very lovely. It's, you know, it's when you write a book, you just sort of fear that no one will read it, or if they do read it, they will hate it. And I'm not sure which is more scary. Um, but yeah, it seems to have. People seem to quite like it, and it's been translated into lots of nice languages that are very exciting and and baffling when you read them. <laughs> you don't, <laughs> don't speak Slovenian. Uh, I love seeing the type, the cover pages that you post on Twitter, and that it, it just the idea that you write something and then it becomes unreadable by the author is yeah. just wonderful. And also, it's a joke. It's a slightly jokey book. It's got lots of sort of puns, and and it's sort of quite lighthearted and funny. And I just I I just worry that how are they doing the puns in Bulgarian? Um, so <laughs> that's the, my main concern. But, you have to leave you know, it up to the translators. People from Turkey and and Hong Kong and so on saying, you know, I read your book, it was really good. You go, oh, thanks so much. I have no idea if it's any good. What you've read. <laughs> I don't speak, so it's, it's a tough one. But, you know, it's lovely to see the book being read by people. So that is the, the thing. 
Okay, and you are working on a book about celebrity at the moment, aren't you? Which is a huge topic. Yeah, it is surprisingly big, uh, much bigger than I assumed. So uh, that'll probably be about three to three and a half years of work in total by the time I'm done with it. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, keep us posted in the meantime. But we are together to talk about something really exciting, something that we both love, the Bayo Tapestry. So last week on Art Detective, I um, had a bit of a scoop. I managed to get to the launch of the Folio Society's new um reproduction of the the tapestry it's incredible so it's not the full 70 meters but it's it's 49 meters it's it's massive and it's on a little tabletop and you can scroll through and it's absolutely perfect it's like being in in the company of the Bayer tapestry so I managed to to chat to them but one of the things that came out of that was that really we only scratched the surface of this incredible artwork and uh, when I first told you about Art Detective you said months and months months ago I'm going to do the Bayer tapestry I'm going to do it. That's what I want to do. Why did you, why did you want to do it so badly? <laughs> because, uh, well, lots of reasons. I mean, obviously, I'm a medievalist by training, so you you know everyone studies the Bayer Tapestry at some point. But I just find it a really intriguing document because it's so ambiguous, and mm. also I'm half English and I'm half French, so I am acutely aware of the kind of uh, <laughs> sort of disagreements and biases going on in the um in the artwork because it's sort of on one hand you kind of go well this is a pro-french pro-norman piece of propaganda and then there are moments you think well hang on a minute harold's the good guy so i really admire the uh, the artistic it's a beautiful piece of embroidery it's not a tapestry it's an embroidery mm-hmm. as they all you know we always bang on about um but i really like the politics of it there's something mm-hmm. quite subversive and a little bit naughty about the um the little running jokes that are going along the top and bottom of the freeze. Yeah, I think it's, it, it, I mean, the, this is the point for me where art meets history meets literature. It's that incredible object that, that sort of crosses the disciplinary divides. And as medievalists, Greg, we know this, don't we? You have to use every bit of information that's available to you. <laughs> Otherwise, you don't, you don't have an awful lot to work with. So I think medievalists are sort of naturally disposed to be a bit more interdisciplinary but the biotapestry the fact it survives at all is really remarkable isn't it I mean it's called the the supreme achievement of the Norman Romanesque and I suppose when we think of Romanesque we tend to think of cathedrals big architectural statements or sculpture but this is something quite fragile it's it is absolutely amazing that it's not been burnt or destroyed or lost yeah and I mean it's 70 meters in length give or take but only 50 centimeters roughly in height so mm. it's a strange shape and size and you know when you think of a tapestry you went to Antipop Palace for example those tapestries are wall hanging they're big they're rectangular they're they cover the walls this is a sort of frieze and it's um hand embroidered by a team of people presumably and you could sort of definitely see this having got lost at some point or as you say someone catches fire to accidentally with a candle or I mean we know (laughs) it was used as a covering on a wagon in like the French Revolution and um you know it very nearly ended up probably just being a bit of fabric that someone repurposed as a as a bit of a tarpaulin so we're really lucky along with the Book of Kells I think this is one of the sort of great medieval treasures that sort of accidentally ended up being still with us but kind of yeah. nearly we nearly lost it so we're very lucky and also it kind of teaches us about the robustness of a lot of these things I mean I'm sure you're the same that um, but when you're in 
museums or libraries and you're handling artifacts or you know I did a, some programs on manuscripts where I had to be so reverential towards these things at the end of the day they're quite robust the book of curls but like a lot of early manuscripts it was dunked in a cow's water trough because yeah. they thought that putting the sacred manuscript into the cow's water would cure the cows of any diseases and the fact that you could dunk a, a manuscript like that in and out of water and yet we mustn't let our hair near to the bellum yeah it's and that sort of thing <laughs> having to wear gloves on television it's like no the gloves are yeah. you're not meant to wear gloves because that inhibits your dexterity and you're more likely to rip a page um but, mm. you know, I think one of the reasons as well that the tapestry survives is because it's got that that wonderful story of the French beating the English. It's a, it's it's an amazing bit of propaganda that has managed to survive the test of time. And, and the fact that it was put up regularly within the cathedral, it sort of suggests that maybe they were you know, within Normandy. This was something that they wanted to continue holding on to and they repaired it and they looked after it. It's a great bit of English bashing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And obviously, as we, I think you might have mentioned in the previous podcast, Napoleon displays it in, I think, 1803, uh, because that's mm. when he's planning his great invasion of Britain. And this is mm. his kind of, this is his roadmap to success. This is what you do. You put your men in a, in a boat, you put your horses in the boat, you get on the boat, you go across the channel, and suddenly <laughs> you're invading a foreign <laughs> nation. So he was trying you're to... king of England. Yeah, yeah exactly. And... <laughs> And that's the remarkable thing about William's invasion, of course, which, you know, not to get sidetracked too much, but the odds of him succeeding are so low. And we've, we just assume, take it as given that he succeeded. Of course he did. You know, William the Conqueror was the king of England. We know this. But he had to get in a ship with thousands of men, 3,000 horses. You've got to feed them. You've got to clothe them. You've got to get across the dangerous seas. Then you've got to arrive. Then you've got to draw the English king into battle. Then you've got to beat him. Then you've got to take the country. It's a really difficult thing to do. So you can see why the Bayer Tapestry is so celebratory, but also why in some regards it's sort of needed, is that it's kind it's sort of trying to justify this real long shot that came off. Yeah. And it was a long shot because I mean one of the things that one of the themes that really comes through, I remember doing this for A-level history about whether William had any claim to the English throne at all. And if he does, it's tenuous at best, isn't it? Yeah. And what we see throughout this is, um, I suppose it's going back to earlier ideas of um, the spoils to the victor, really, because it's a huge programme that he puts together. Like you say, here you see the documenting of all the, the, the weapons that are being made, the number of spears that are being lined up, mm. the uh, like you say, the wagons, the horses, the ships themselves, which are top-notch technology for their day yeah um all of that enterprise leads to success so yes there's a sort of undertone of justifying that Harold gave his oath to William that Edward didn't have a heir and William was a, a, a you know bloodline but actually there's something more about it isn't there which is hard work pays off <laughs> yeah exactly planning it's all in the planning and the execution and and the luck as well of course because of course he he's He's holding the papal banner. He's he believes that God's on his side. You know, in a very religious eleventh mm. century mindset, this is God's will. And the fact that it's such a long shot and he still succeeds is just further proof that he was always in the right and that God has um, blessed his cause with victory. So mm. you know, you can see that it's a combination of of uh, religious fervor and and. Uh, and political one-upmanship, but also an enormous logistical operation. Mm. And in terms of 
where it's made because I think this is one of the things you picked up on right at the beginning there's a controversy isn't there because on the one hand um we can definitely say well now I think we can definitely say that this was connected with Odo Thea that this is William's half-brother um he is put in charge of the county of Kent but he also has this stronghold in Bayonne it's probably made around 1070 um, around the time that the big cathedral is being built there in the Romanesque manner but um uh, the odd thing, of course, is that most scholars now agree it was made in England by probably by female um, embroiderers in this this style, Opus Anglicanum, that they got really famous for, uh, maybe in and around Canterbury. So right, right from the off, you've got a seeming co- a conflict between the conquerors trying to tell their story and the embroiderers sat there working day after day with these details possibly adapting it to tell a slightly different story what do you think i mean that's that's the exciting thing isn't it this is and this is what <laughs> scholars have argued about for for decades um i mean the first thing to say i think is when we how do we know that it's made in england in canterbury well the evidence is good for this because on the one hand the names that are listed in the tapestry are english spellings so that's the first thing um edwardus is the latin yeah. Edward the Confessor, but more more crucially, I think, is William is written as Wilhelm rather than the Norman version Wilhelm. So you've got mm. English orthography being used for names, which suggests the people doing it are using English spelling. And the other more um, impressive argument, I think, the one that really convinces for me, is that there are many borrowed images in the tapestry itself that have been nicked from other earlier medieval um, artistic depictions in manuscripts. And all of the key ones are from manuscripts that were held in the library in Canterbury. And one of the most famous ones is a a manuscript that was given to St. Augustine by the Pope himself in 597 when he comes over and he Christianizes the Saxons and builds his first church in England. And this gospel has this very famous uh, moment in it, which then turns up again in the bio tapestry. So it suggests that actually the designer, whoever that person is, and the team putting it out there, who are, as we say, probably women, maybe nuns, they are looking at earlier inspiration in medieval manuscripts that they're they're rummaging around the library, which means they're probably <laughs> in Canterbury. Yeah. Oh, yes. You see, you're an excellent art historian, Greg. You know, you need to. You need to read, yeah, become an art historian officially full time because <laughs> that's the thing, isn't it? It's about finding the sources, the the evidence that's surrounding these people. They're not they're not creating images in a vacuum. So no. so the scene that you're thinking of is that that Last Supper scene, isn't it? That you yeah, see in the comic book frieze on the on the Saint Augustine Gospel book, and then you see it reproduced as a feast in the middle. It's it's one of my favourite bits of the tapestry, actually. <laughs> the idea that they're having a great big feast. Yeah. Um, but also, well. also Odo, where is Odo's position? He's in the same position where Jesus is in the original. Exactly. So Odo is sort of going, hey, I'm the uh, I'm the figurehead <laughs> here. I'm the most important person here, which lends weight to the idea that Odo has commissioned this and he is bigging himself up. And actually, he appears in the tapestry several times uh, at key moments doing heroic things. So um, I think there's, there's strong evidence to say that he has um, ensured that he comes out very well here. He's in the Christ-like figure, exactly. Yeah. But there's something interesting about this object as well, because uh, one of the remarkable things 
being, being a medievalist, you, you tend to study a lot of art that's got very, very clear Christian connections, um, were used in Christian settings, manuscripts, um, liturgical objects. This is a secular object. Um, and that's a tricky word in the medieval period because everything is um, influenced by religious imagery, religious iconography. But it is telling a story of battle. It's just telling a story of kings, of courts. Um, of royalty. And, and that makes it, again, a really unique survival. Um, th there's a lot in here that, that tells us about the time, isn't there? We can get information on fashion, on on weaponry, <laughs> on the facial hair. I, I presume yeah. you picked up on the facial hair connection. <laughs> well, I, I'm all about the facial hair because I'm, I'm a beardy <laughs> man myself. And um, there's that sort of really interesting thing that the Normans and the Saxons or the English, if we want to call them English, are well, the Normans are sort of othered, or the English are othered, or rather there's a divide between them in, in how they wear their facial hair. The Normans don't have any facial hair, yeah. and in fact, they have very little hair on their heads as well. They shave the back of their head all the way up to the top of the skull, and then from there, they then have this sort of awful uh, sort of front mullet, really. It's kind of like a, <laughs> like a really, really heavy fringe at the front, but the back is all shaved, and this, of course, is because they wear coifs female coifs up over the head when they ride and your hair gets caught in it it's a practical hairstyle but it makes them look like really sort of scary militant guys who you know have got this really weird hairstyle the saxons they do look really odd i mean the, the thing yeah. is they, they they're always presented in in contrast to the anglo-saxons who was who always look a bit folky uh, with their facial hair. Yeah, they look like <laughs> so, they, they're sort of maybe uh, they they sort of play, you know, country songs in folk songs in the 70s or or there's a sort of <laughs> German porn style look going on as well with some of them have got really big handlebar tashes. Um, <laughs> and the Normans shave their face as well. So that's, you know, the other thing is the Normans depilate, they shave, they are, they have a very different um, aesthetic and a different interpretation of masculinity in terms of masculine beauty, masculine looks. They are, you know, the Saxons and Normans are equally violent when they need to be, but there is a very different uh, aesthetic going on with male grooming. And this is something I think that uh, you pick up on in your book particularly, but actually it's, it's interesting where we trace back the lines of the Normans because the Normans are Norse men, they mm. are descended from Vikings, and one of my bugbears is how the Vikings are miscast as these sort of brutal-looking barbarians who who run around with bits of bone sticking out of their beards, slaughtering people. But they were incredibly vain. Um, Viking male graves, you know, we find all these preening utensils mm. that they braided themselves. And actually, the way that you express yourself, it's the same today, but the way you express yourself through um, the way you, you dress and the way you present your hair, your facial hair, but also tattoos, all these things that are often lost uh, yeah. through looking at burials, there's certain bits of evidence like the Bayer Tapestry that, that bring those things back to life. And it's really important because it is the defining look that separates people. If you're going to whack someone in a battle, if they've got a moustache, you might be on their side, so don't whack them. <laughs> but it, yeah. It's actually an important part of, of, of structuring this military society, isn't it? It absolutely is. I would say we have to be perhaps a little cautious of using the tapestry too much as a sort of archaeological record of exactly. I think, because I, mm. I make historical dramas as well, I've actually made a historical drama about 1066, Channel 4, several years ago. And one of the crucial things when you're making a historical drama is your characters need to look different. They need to have different hairstyles, different names, 
you cast too many people who look the same. They're all roughly the same height, same hair color, same look. Quite hard to tell them apart. And I wonder if the artists here in the tapestry have sort of gone, right, okay, how do we tell a Norman from a Saxon? All right, Saxons have tashes, Normans don't. And <laughs> and maybe they have sort of created a, uh, a bit of a, a broad brush approach in order to make things clearer. And actually, this is a sort of, this is artistic clarity rather than archaeological verisimilitude. So I wonder if we have to be a little bit careful in reading the tapestry as a pure representation of what people look like and their clothing because of course there are things in the tapestry that slightly don't add up like um well we know at this period in history round shields had sort of gone out of fashion really but the saxons are all using round shields so again you say okay is that a, is that a sort of deliberate differentiation or are we saying the saxons are a bit backwards and they're they're a bit mm-hmm. kind of old worldy and they're using recycled kit uh, and ditto at a norman kite shape shield which is longer um at that point in history it didn't need to have a boss on it which is that metal lump in the middle you don't need those because that's not a vital part anymore with the design of a kite shaped shield you don't need the boss to hold it together so is that simply a nice bit of artistic license is that something the artist has seen elsewhere in a different illustration or were these bosses mm. there in the shield so, so, yeah I mean, you're right you're right to caution against against depending on it too heavily. Um, and, and again, it's important to note that this is made after the events. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the things that are being recorded, I mean, we haven't even said what's being recorded, but it is the run up to 1066, the preparations, the battle itself. And then we're missing probably about a metre and a half at the end yeah. of the tapestry. Never yeah, we're missing never William's recorded. coronation. Don't know what was on it. Well, which I mean, is probably like, William's coronation. Yeah. I mean, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Because, of course, the whole point is about legitimising William's reign, because this man is not just uh, a foreign interloper, but he's a man who's who's known as William the Bastard. He was illegitimate. <laughs> you know, he, he, was, he was a hard bastard as well. He was a violent guy, <laughs> both meanings of the word. But, he, <laughs> you know, it, medieval society at this point is is less, gets less hung up on on being rightful heir and all that, but he is a man who has sort of fought his way to dignity, and then he's come and invaded as a whole huge kingdom of England uh, with its long-held traditions. And in order to justify his his new reign, he's having to put out this propaganda, put out these sort of um, you know the Doomsday Book or whatever these various technologies of asserting power because he is not. No, he's not one of them. He's new. He's novel. Mm. He's foreign. Um, and so the tapestry presumably culminates with a kind of glorious co- um, coronation in the new church of Westminster Abbey. Um, because we've seen all the way through the tapestry, these 75 scenes, um, give or take, that he is the rightful heir, the rightful uh, owner of the throne, and that Harold is the bad guy who has stolen power. We think that that's apparently what we're being told now you've mentioned earlier that actually there is some ambiguity going on and this is where i get quite excited because i think that history uh has a sort of internal argument with itself about who is the bad guy uh because there's lots going on in there ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. And it's, this is where we're getting brought into the idea of the marginalia as well, because yeah. again, I, I'm the same. I get so excited at the thought that there's hidden mysteries, hidden symbols in artworks like this. Um, and, you know, when you're painstakingly embroidering day after day, and you're using tiny little stitches, uh, there is the temptation. It's the same with, with manuscript illumination. There is the temptation to add little details that might be missed at first glance, but on close inspection are there. And this is there is this relationship, isn't there, between the, the um, action that's taking place in the middle part of the tapestry and then these borders. So on the whole, they're usually decorative. And that, again, is, is a sign, I think, of the Anglo-Saxon, possibly a sign of the Anglo-Saxon heritage here, because we see a lot of birds, a lot of beasts, a lot of sort of foliate designs that yeah. we also see in manuscripts. But there's the odd occasional little little hint at things, isn't there? So the ghost fleet, that's a particularly good one, isn't it? Yeah, and the thing that I'm really into is the Aesop fables. I bet, yeah. They just, you know, because they, you know, as you say, if you're a, an artist and you're just there day after day, uh, you know, I suppose part of it might be just like, I'm going to draw a cow. I'm bored. I'm going to, you know, what can I draw? <laughs> I'm running out of ideas. Oh, I'll do another winged lion. Um, exactly. I'm sure there's a sort of like, you know, just fill the space with whatever. But there are some deliberately um, political, but by the looks of it, in you know, insertions which are. Speaking to Greek myth, or, or not necessarily myth, but the the fables told by Aesop, who is a, a very sort of in the Middle Ages, it becomes quite commonly well read. The stories are well known in the Middle Ages, um, and the Aesop fables are, of course, moral tales about you know, um, doing right and doing wrong, and and being careful not to trust the wrong person, and so on. And some of these fables seem to be in, in really interesting places in the tapestry at really key scenes you know beneath the sort of crucial moments you see these little Aesop fables and it suddenly creates a meaning that maybe wasn't necessarily intended to be there by the main designer maybe the artists are adding little elements themselves or maybe the designer built in ambiguity uh, you know some of these are you know the one that leaps out for me is the fox and the crow um, absolutely yeah 
And the story of the Fox and the Crow, if I remember rightly, I haven't done Aesop since I was about eight years old. <laughs> I'm going to try and remember. I remember, I think, the crow has stolen some cheese from a farmer's windowsill, goes up into the uh, tree branch and is sitting there with the cheese in its mouth. And the fox, cunning fox, comes up and says, oh, you know, you're, you're a lovely crow, but, uh, but of course crows have horrible voices. They can't sing as beautifully as other crows. <laughs> And the crow goes, oh, hang on a minute, what are you talking about? I'm a beautiful singer, and opens its mouth to sing to prove the fox wrong. Cheese falls out, and the cunning fox gets its cheese. My first problem with this is I didn't realise that crows or foxes like cheese. This is I've always struggled with that. But <laughs> the idea of the myth, of course, is that the cunning fox uses the vanity and pride of the crow against it to outfox it, to outwit it, takes its prize from it. But of course, when you think about it, the story starts with the crow stealing the cheese in the first place. It's not, mm. it's not the crow's cheese to begin with, it's the farmer's cheese. And then the fox has stolen it from the crow and has done so with cunning and with, you know, snide, naughty ways. So we see this fox and the crow three times in the tapestry. And we see them crucially when Harold has basically sworn an oath on holy relics to, by the look of it, support William's support for the, for the crown of England. But then, strangely, the third time you see it, the crow has the cheese again. So <laughs> they've, put the, they've put the cheese back in the crow's mouth, and then Harold is sailing back to England. So I wonder if maybe the artist there is saying, look, you know, cheese is the crown of England. Uh, the crow had it, the fox then had it, and then the crow has stolen it back. He has mm. re-stolen it and has gone home to England and will steal the throne of England. And it's actually the fox's cheese. And But, you know, then again you say, but hang on, it was stolen in the first place. There's so many layers of, of argument going on here. Um, and that's the thing. I think they would have, uh, again, be, being visually literate and understanding these sorts of moral tales uh, in an environment like a monastery. I mean, let's say, let's say this was being made in and around St. Augustine's in Canterbury, which is one of the theories, uh, they would have been literate enough to understand that these symbols have these, these texts associated with them and that they can, can play a sort of subliterate level of this story out in the marginalia. Um, but there's things that have been lost to us completely because that's one that we can sort of access. There's a really interesting scene, isn't there, where um, you have a monk looks like he's touching the face or possibly slapping mm. the face of a nun. And then in the margin just below, the scene is being recreated, but the figures are naked. And, and there is an inscription. It sort of suggests that this may have been, this, this ties in with your work on celebrity, I imagine, but <laughs> uh, that this is a story that was doing the rounds, that people, if they'd had their OK magazines in the year 1070, this was the sort of <laughs> you know scandalous story that may have been, in that, but uh, it's left this echo uh, at, on the tapestry. And, and I find it really interesting, this idea of showing them clothed and naked, using the difference between the body of the tapestry and the margin. Yeah. Yeah. And this this person, you, this woman, is she's named, she's called Elifkifu, uh, mm. which uh, unfortunately is a really common name at this point in history. Uh, and there are loads of Elifkifus. And it's such it's such uh, an attractive name. It's so easy it's to lovely. say. <laughs> I mean, it means it means elf gift, which is nice, I think. Elf gift, um, yeah. But, it um, is a lovely name. But yeah, so so you've looked into this then, and because 
yeah, it, yeah, because it's so common, it's difficult to find out who it is, isn't it? Well, I mean, lots of scholars have had a go, and and there are sort of two primary ones that I think there's there's Ethelred the Unready's wife, Elfgiva of York, I think she is, and then the other one is Elfgiva of Northampton, I think, and she's married to Canute, and you sort of this is you know if, even if it is those women, that's a fifty years ago that story. Um, at yeah. the beginning of the ten hundreds, and and yet there she is on the tapestry as a sort of running joke that people are meant to sort of go, oh yeah, we know that story. And one of the stories <laughs> about you know one of the stories about Ifgiva of Canute, I think, is that she had perhaps uh, cheated him by um, having children with other men and then saying they were his sons. So there's a possibility of some sort of scandal of sex scandal, which is why there's nudity involved, and she's. She slept with another guy, but it's weird that the cleric touching her face. Like, you know, why is there a why is there a monk touching her face? What's he doing? Is he stroking her? Is he is he slapping her? Yeah. Um, it's it, it's very interesting in because the, there's a reproduction of the Bay Tapestry in, in Reading Museum yes. of all places, which is near where I grew up. And um, in that, it was made a I think it was in the 1890s. It's a Victorian yeah. uh, reproduction, and they've they've not included the genitals. Because There's underpants. I love it. It's such a wonderful <laughs> Victorian thing. Is you can have this sort of tremendous scene of violence at the Bayer Tapestry where men are being beheaded, but you can't see penises. Um, so, God no, God no. Cover them uh, up with a nice pair of Victorian underpants. <laughs> Um, but there, I mean, there are so many, but there's so many fallacies on display in this tapestry. Uh, you know, there's one. I, I posted a Twitter uh, Twitter photo yesterday of it. There's a guy squatting down, and he's got an enormous penis. It is down to his knees. It is half of his torso is sort of penis. And you just sort of It's manly, Greg. It's all about manly prowess. I Come know. on, that's what this tapestry is about. Uh, but that's the thing, is like, you know, is that undermining what you're seeing? Is that an ironic comment? Is this satire? Is this medieval satire saying all of the stuff you see above here is just blokes with their cocks out being that yeah, show? Yeah. Or is it some religious allegory to um, to the sin of lust and, and nudity, or is it some reference to Adam being naked before Eve turns up? You know, what is going on with these representations? Or is it just literally some nuns drawing a cock? Going, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this exactly. is it. This is it. I like to think myself into the minds of the, the, the nuns who are actually stitching this thing. And uh, the idea that they've just been conquered and oppressed. And let's be honest, you know, the way that the Normans go about conquering is pretty brutal. There's castles popping yeah. up everywhere. There's there's new monastic complexes that look like castles. And, and there is a wholesale replacement of the upper strata of society. Yeah. You know, all the lords, all the bishops, everyone's replaced with Normans. So this is a full on, it, you, we could make comparisons to dictatorships, couldn't we? It's just, yeah, it, it's come in. Yeah. It's an absolute coup. It's turned everything upside down. And then these artists, these women who've inherited uh, generations of the skill of Opus Anglicanum are being set to work to tell this story about how brilliant the people are who've come over and conquered them. So I I cannot help but think that there are going to be subtle messages creeping in yeah. <laughs> in that process. <laughs> some of the messages are pro-William, some of them are pro-Harold. I mean, so you know, another one of the Aesop fables, I've just I've just had a look at it quickly, is the stag and the lion, which is a really quick one, which is basically a stag is being chased by a pack of dogs. It runs into a cave and thinks it's safe. But what is in the cave? A lion, and it eats it. And ah. we see that stag and the lion being chased underneath the scene where Harold has 
apparently crash landed in Pontieu, <laughs> wrong, wrong place in France. And he's been captured by Guy de Pontieu, who has taken him hostage and stripped him of his sword and his belt, which is a huge humiliation because a man of his status would never be stripped of your belt. And underneath this scene, you see the hounds chasing the stag. And where is the stag running towards? He's running towards the lion, thinking he's safe. And who is the lion? Well, it's William the William the Conqueror turns up. He hears that Harold has been captured. He turns up and he organizes for his uh, freedom, brings him back to Normandy, and has essentially ensnared him in his cave. And he's going to do it in a much more cunning way. He's going to make him swear an oath on a holy relic. But this Aesop fable tells the story of, you know, you're running from danger and you run basically out of the frying pan and into the fire. You run from one dangerous beast into the mouth of another one. So there are lots of these little stories. There's, there's the wolf and the lamb in there, which is about um, the wolf comes up to a lamb in the river and says, I'm, I want to eat you, but I, I'm going to try and find a justification for doing it. He tries to find lots of reasons. And each time the lamb says, well, no, I didn't do that. I didn't muddy your fool. I didn't, you know, I'm not related to your brother. I'm not any of these things. In the end, the wolf just goes, fine, I'm going to eat you anyway. <laughs> just because I want to, yeah. I, that's, that's, that, you, th- these are such amazing insights that you're giving Greg I'm so pleased that you're bringing all these these secret bits into it because it's just, it brings it brings the tapestry to life and and I think it makes it a much more complex and exciting artwork yeah. one of the things I find really exciting it is such an unusual format you mentioned earlier you know we tend to think of of tapestries although this is not a tapestry we must no. again it's an important thing. but we tend to think of tapestries as wall hangings um functional things you know they decorate the place but they also keep warmth in um but this is this is a freeze in many ways and what's interesting is that there's this lost hanging of um the the, the warrior Birthnoth, um yes. famous famous recorded from um the battle of Molden poem yeah. the old english poem and and the battle of Molden in in 991 now there's a re- um a report that his his widow gave a tapestry that recorded his deeds to Ely Cathedral yeah. to sort of commemorate it. And and that this could have become, in a way, a blueprint for celebrating battle. And I find that really interesting that it, as with everything novel and, and oppressive that the Normans are doing in Anglo-Saxon England, they're doing that age-old tradition of also looking to native traditions and thinking, right, what can we, um, what can we take on board ourselves? Yeah. What can we you know harness to to secure our legitimacy it's very possible that there was this tradition of kind of these sorts of battle freezes that that odo thinks right we'll have one of those made for for, for us in that case so again i just think it's all about innovation but it's also about tradition it's it's an amazing thing and yeah. for every country like this that survived think about the hundreds that have been lost all the evidence that's been lost um, yep. I think we're just lucky. We're lucky to have it, aren't we? <laughs> we are lucky, and perhaps the fact that it was it was housed in France is why it's preserved. And, and as we said before, you know, we, we're lucky it didn't got to get destroyed in the French Revolution. I think you're right about Odo. I think it's really interesting that he obviously comes across. He's installed in Kent. Um, another reason we think it, it Odo's paid for it is that there are two other men named in the tapestry called uh, Vidard and, uh, and Vidal, I think, and both yeah. of them are found in the in the Doomsday Book and are tenants of Odo in Kent. So there are two yeah. named figures in this tapestry who seem to have an association with Odo in Kent. They seem to have been rewarded for their conduct in the Battle of Hastings. They've done some great thing, perhaps, on the battlefield. They've been given some land and they turn up in this tapestry. So 
that's again suggests that Odo has has commissioned it. But you're absolutely right. He has commissioned an English artistic representation of a Norman victory. And maybe it's um, trying to play nice with the locals. He's <laughs> trying to sort of get them to, you know, endorse it. Maybe it's simply that the, you know, he's he's going for where the best artists are and he knows the best artists in Canterbury. You know, the Normans are, they're great builders. They're, they're architects of renown. But I, I wouldn't necessarily say they're the world's greatest uh, tapestry makers. Artists. No, they're no. not renowned for that, are they? No, you know, but they're, why not? I mean, that's the thing. The Anglo-Saxons, by this stage, that was one of the big selling points of, of yeah. going over to England and grabbing England was its rich culture and its, its I mean, it was very rich in lots of things, wasn't it, in its legal structure but yeah and it's tax it's economy hard. you know it's it's a very yeah, good tax haven <laughs> yeah, it's very wealthy you know it's got a really well-regulated economy it's got excellent administration and bureaucracy it's a sort of beautifully centralized system and the normans basically hijack it um they yeah. turn up and go right we're having that and they <laughs> they kind of just go yeah carry on as before lads but uh i'm your new king <laughs> just and with I, us <laughs> yeah i built a castle it's, in I mean, Exactly. It is brutal. It is brutal. I think I think there's a reason that, that school children are taught about 1066 and it's because it is this it's this massive moment. But it's a moment in in, in English history. Um, I did a podcast with uh, Peter Frankpan who says, oh, 1066 on a world scale is absolutely nothing. And he's right. But but for, for sort of this sort of native tradition, it does transform the complexion of the British yeah. Isles you know beyond recognition it transforms the landscape it transforms the the art i mean you could call the bayer tapestry the last anglo-saxon artwork the last known great anglo-saxon artwork and and i think that's yeah. another reason why I, I love it so much um well it's it's really interesting I'm, I'm i'm a good friend of peter and i agree with him on the kind of we get very obsessed with englishness and, and eurocentricism and he's right that meanwhile mm-hmm. the rest of the world is doing many greater things but i would quibble a little bit on that because i think tapestry is really interesting because it, it depicts the end of an age not mm. just the, the, what's interesting about the tapestry is it's missing a whole third of the story which is the viking invasion of harold hadrada joined by tostig and tostig is harold goblinton's brother and there is no reference to that at all in the tapestry um which again is perhaps indicative of a norman bent you know the normans don't care about the Viking invasion because it failed. But what's so interesting about the Viking invasion is that it's often depicted, it's often written about by historians as the end of the Viking era. So yeah. dramatic was the failure, so catastrophic were the losses. You know, they come over with 300 ships, they go home with 24 ships. You've got a 90% fatality rate in the Viking army. But it's the often heralded as the end of the Viking age and the end, of course, of the Saxon age. So in the space of a month, you've gone from having an English king, then a Norwegian invader, suddenly a Norman turns up, deposes, you know, both of them, and there's a whole new regime in charge. And in some ways you could say that the early Middle Ages have ended. And here and is I a think, new for start. You make that point about the end of the Viking Age. It, it again it is so important that they're almost absent from their absence from this narrative is is so poignant because they have reached their their end in many ways and and when we think about the reach of the vikings how far their influence spread you know from mm-hmm. constantinople right over to 
the Newfoundland Russia. and yeah, yeah and Russia and and that that is a culture a cultural group a society that had such a profound effect on such a, a large amount of the inhabited world and and it's over it's it's snuffed out and what we're replaced with is this this Romanesque this this Western Europe that 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 the Normans come to characterize and then that sets the tone for another couple of hundred years of history in many ways in Western Europe certainly well certainly um, yeah. Because then, yeah, of course, the I mean, Norman lands in France, and you end up with the the Plantagenets and the Angevins, and they're kind of a hundred years. And war. the Holy Roman Empire, and it yeah. spreads down to Spain. We can carry the narrative on, but well, that's going to have to be another podcast, Greg, because we have talked for an epically long time. Oh my gosh! Well, we should, shouldn't we? Should we just yeah. quickly do the arrow in the eye? It's Very not. Big. It didn't happen, did it? Let's say that <laughs> there's that it's it's possibly uh, that we've always thought that Harold. Is is the figure that has the arrow piercing his eye, mm. but in fact, it's probably not. It's probably the character collapsing to the right of him, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, very quickly. You, I mean, the the word Harold is over the man in the eye, so you could say, okay, that's him. But the verb interfectus est uh, is killed yeah. in Latin is over the man who's being sliced through the leg, falling backwards. Uh, and we know in the the earliest contemporary source really is the Carmen de Hastinga Proelio song of the Battle of Hastings by Guy Damien and it talks not about an arrow in the eye but about him being mobbed by um, Eustace of Boulogne and, and William and a couple of others and they basically hack him to pieces they cut off his legs they cut off his genitals they stab him in the, the stomach you know the violence of his death in the earliest sources is nothing to do with an eye or an arrow it's to do with with being you know sliced horribly and Greg, Greg could you just say yeah. that could you say that last line again because it just cut out the violence of his death yeah yeah sorry uh, so the violence of his death in the the contemporary source the earliest contemporary source that Armin de Hastinga Proelio is not about archery or an arrow in the eye it's about mutilation being sliced through the leg through the stomach his genitals are cut off he is mobbed by William's men and William himself and is horribly slaughtered Whereas, of course, an arrow from a distance is sort of an ignoble death for a king. Um, exactly. But it's also connected with this idea of him being a perjurer as well, isn't it? That, yes. Um, that this arrow may have been... There's a fascinating uh, bit of evidence that in a, in an earlier uh, image of the tapestry dated from the 18th century, you, there is no arrow there. There is... Mm. That the arrow seems to have been added in later uh, with a with a with a different thread, so that it might have been added in again as a sort of additional level of ignominy to add to Harold that that he was a perjurer because this was the suitable um, yeah death yeah. For, for somebody who has broken their word, isn't it? Because in uh, there's the Old Testament story of um, King Zedekiah and his sons uh, who are punished for um, basically breaking an oath of loyalty to their lord, and Zedekiah is blinded, his sons are beheaded. So mm. there is this uh, idea that being blinded is your punishment for breaking your word. And we've seen in the tapestry uh, an oath being broken uh, by Harold. But as you say, it's probably a later restoration. And this is something we haven't said, actually. The tapestry has been restored heavily. And there are lots of bits in it that are actually, fortunately, not original. And it's hard to know quite what was there beforehand. But it looks mm. like maybe Harold, um, for me, is probably the man on the floor being horribly slice to death rather than arrow in the eye but of course arrow in the eye is a pretty timeless death and it's gone down in history as one of the great things that anyone knows about this tapestry so it's amazing isn't it I, I love the idea that for centuries we've been saying 
Harold Godwinson and sharing this image of the of a man with an arrow. <laughs> Harold's actually lying on the floor behind going, actually, mate, it's me over yeah. here, over here. Yeah, that's Steve with the arrow in the eye. That's Steve. How come Steve gets all the glory? Yeah, Damn you, I mean, Steve. That's the real problem. I mean, the, the interesting thing about the tapestry is that we see the key characters, William and Harold, uh, and Edward the Confessor, of course. Edward is, is very distinctive because he's bearded. But these mm. characters, because they're drawn by different artists, they're embroidered by different artists, they change colour and they change clothing and they change horses. Their horses are black, then they're white, then they're grey. So there's a sort of problem in continuity where you can't always necessarily go, here's Harold, he looks, you know, it's not like Bart Simpson always looks the same in every scene. <laughs> Harold changes clothes, he changes his look throughout. And you have to sort of try and keep up um, by using the the naming orthography about his name or by trying to work out, is he, you know, is he central to this scene? Um, but it's not and always again, it's this. It's the combination of text and image, isn't it? And it's, again, one of these things that, that makes it such a dense object to study. You, know, you need yeah. to be able to understand the Latin. You need to understand uh, the relationship between the main images and the marginalia. It's just endlessly fascinating. Greg, we could carry on talking about this all day. I might have to... To, to, we might have to finish this conversation you know, another day, <laughs> but we've covered so very much. We must sign off. Um, I have really enjoyed talking to you. You're brilliant to follow on Twitter. And uh, if people want to follow you, what's your Twitter hand, handle? It's at Greg underscore Jenna. It's that, that cheeky underscore has to come in. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's amazing. And I love everything you do. You know, your bits for the first size series are amazing. I can't wait for the celebrity book to come out. And I've got to wait three years. Not fair. But uh, <laughs> good good luck with writing that. I hope you've enjoyed this, Art Detective listeners. If you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter as um, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. And if you want to subscribe, you could go to historyhit.com slash artdetective. There'll be lots of wonderful guests coming up, particularly in the month of June. We have a bumper crop. Uh, but Greg, honestly, so grateful. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>